How are we doing? If you're a guest or a visitor, my name's Andy, I'm part of the team here. Welcome to family. If you have little ones with you, um, one of the things I love, and I really, really mean this, is whenever we get to, thanks darling, um, gather and have little people just feel at home and at ease and run around and do all that sort of stuff. Our life, if we're honest, is a bit chaotic, and so it's hard to uh, distract me, and uh, if there is some noise, hopefully it doesn't distract you too much, but if you have little ones with you, please feel totally at home and at ease with that. We also have little party and big party in the back, hence the noise, and, uh, and we absolutely love that uh, too. I need to correct something that I said last week. It's very serious, and I need to apologize. had some uh, hard conversations this week, and I just want you all to know that I think newborn babies are beautiful. Um, and I'm not lying. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you weren't here last week, um, don't listen to the podcast. You'll, you'll think I'm a horrible person. <laughs> um, but we did, uh, we did um, start a new series last week called Learning to See. And uh, the reality is that um, two people can look at the same thing and see something completely different. That's as much as I'm going to say about that. Um, but we talked about um, these two questions, two prayers that I think are some of the most important that we ever pray. God, what do you see and what do you say? God, what do you see and God, what do you say? Because if you're anything like me, oftentimes what I see going on in my life or around my life is not the same as what God sees. And unfortunately, maybe last week's a great moment, what I say in my life and what God would say aren't always exactly the same thing. Now, I do work hard at that, right? You're all like, you're a flipping minister. What are we doing here? Isn't that your job? Well, yes, kind of, but I I do make mistakes um, often. It has taken me a long time to learn to see God at work in my life. I don't know about you. I don't know how many times you have a God, where are you moment. God, what are you doing? How how do I make sense of this situation or this kind of thing? And you've probably, if you've been around us for any length of time, you've heard me say this before, that often we are drawn to the dramatic in our life as God's work, voice, and activity. A miracle a power encounter, something that's undeniably other. And yet the truth is, as I reflect on the last kind of 14 years of following Jesus, so often the most dynamic moments in my life with God are the most ordinary and the mundane. And I I used to talk about uh, changing nappies in this moment. Thank God we're out of that moment. But if you get around churches and Christian conferences and even podcasts, sometimes you can be forgiven for thinking God only ever moves in the crazy, dramatic moments. But the reality is most of our lives are pretty ordinary. Getting kids out to school, trying to be a good employee, trying to be a good partner or friend, trying to show up in our community. Most of those moments aren't overly dramatic, and yet they are saturated with the presence and pulsing life of Jesus if we can learn to see it. And last week we talked about the need for us to have our eyes opened. 
How many times, just like those two travelers on the road to Emmaus, are we walking with God, we just don't recognize him? Two questions to think about when learning to see. What are you looking at and what are you looking for? What are you looking at and what are you looking for? I want us to look at a different story this morning found in Acts chapter 9. Just before you go there, a little bit of context. If you've read much of the New Testament before, you'll be familiar with this guy called Paul. He wrote a whole kind of chunk of it. And if you're new to uh, church or faith or the scriptures, then this can get a little bit crazy. I remember growing up, uh, my grandparents used to take us when we were really small, my brother and sister and I to church. And uh, if I'm pretty honest, it it was uh, was, uh, often a really confusing experience. I didn't understand much of what was going on. At this time in my life, I wasn't following Jesus, but Jesus, God, and church were all connected somehow. I had that awareness that this thing we did on a Sunday had something to do with this guy called Jesus, this bigger idea of God, and this thing, church, right? But I used to sit listening to various preachers and speakers, and they always talked way more about some man called Paul. And I used to be really confused. I had an Uncle Paul, and I had a friend called Paul, and I was sure they weren't talking about him. And I I remember this as a six, seven, eight-year-old, never really having the courage to ask a question. But I used to leave church with my grandparents all the time going, who is this guy? And what has he got to do with this whole kind of thing? So just in case you're in that boat, let me explain before we jump in. Because we're going to talk a lot about uh, Paul, but actually he's called Saul, but we'll get to that later. Um, Before we met Jesus... Um, this guy Paul, who was then Saul, he was born in a place called Tarsus, and he lived there around the time of Jesus and the birth of the church. And for any rugby fans in the room, Saul was kind of the James Ryan of his generation. Okay, some of you are like, who's James Ryan? James Ryan is a 22-year-old rugby player, plays for Leinster and Ireland. He got his first Ireland cap before he played for Leinster, and he has never lost a professional rugby match. Never. Like, it's totally mad. I, I, I find that kind of crazy. Anyway, um, he is like the, the golden boy of his generation. And that's Saul. Saul was this standout guy. He studied, studied Jewish law and divinity under one of the most famous rabbis of the day, a guy called Gamaliel. He was the best of the best. He was a Pharisee, which meant he didn't just... Imagine this is your day job, right? He wasn't really just trying to live out the Ten Commandments. He had 613 specific commandments that he was doing everything he possibly could to order his life around not breaking. And he absolutely and utterly despised Christians and Christianity. If you were here a couple of weeks ago whenever I was teaching about courage, you'll remember the story of Stephen uh, who got stoned to death by a bunch of people for following Jesus. And in chapter 7 of Acts, it says that the people that were about to stone stone Stephen laid their coats at Saul's feet. That he was presiding over this brutal murder of this follower of Jesus. And the scriptures actually record that Saul approved of their killing. Like this isn't him passively 
there going, oh my goodness, I've just got caught up in someone being martyred today. He is watching this man be brutally murdered, looking at it, thinking, this is good. This is a good thing. This guy is getting exactly what he deserves. So this is the context where we pick up Saul's, who would later become Paul's life. Acts chapter 9, it's in page 761 uh, on your black Bibles. 761 in your black Bibles. Acts 9 verse 1 says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. And we have today. We welcome you among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's a bit of a mad story. A bit of a famous story. Maybe lots of you have heard it before. Um, verse 2 says, and so he gets, he, he's still breathing out murderous threats, right? So he wants to kill all of the Christians that he can find to the point where he goes to the religious authority and he says, empower me to go to this other city to find everyone else who's connected, following, surrendered their life to Jesus so that I might imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, And he asked him, the chief priest, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way... That's really, really important. During this time, there was no such thing as a Christian. They were known as followers of the way. Christianity was never supposed to be a belief system. It was always supposed to be a way of life. It was never supposed to be just an idea that you subscribe to. It was always understood to be a way of 
living. We talked about this a lot after Easter. Jesus never intended to start a religion. He came to reintroduce us to what it means to be truly human and to model and teach us to live out that whole new way of life. And I love that in the New Testament as followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way. The way. So here we find Saul saying, can I have permission to go and find all those living this new kind of disruptive life and arrest them and imprison them? This man Saul is passionately opposed to Christians and everything they stand for to the point that he would kill them. I wonder how many of you have people in your life that you think are like a million miles away from God. Like, like they're impossible. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe for some of you it's your teenage kids right now. Like you couldn't imagine them being more disinterested, disconnected, or further from God. They're maybe the most intellectual, well-read atheist that you know Or maybe their lives seem the most out of control and selfish that you could possibly imagine. Maybe they are crippled and controlled by addiction or pride or whatever. But all you know is that there is no way in heaven or earth they would ever be open to a conversation about Jesus. Never mind talking to him for themselves. That's Saul here, right? In fact, if we're honest... He probably makes that person in your mind seem like a daisy compared to him. Like this guy is up to his neck in persecuting the church. Presiding over the murder, public execution of Christians. One of the things I notice often is that people who appear appear farthest from God are often actually the closest if we can learn to see. So often those in our life that we write off that we think never in a million years, um, we don't have time to do this, but there are lots of people in this community who are that person. I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had with people who found their way into these types of environments and said, I'm here because of my wife or my boyfriend Fill in the gap, but this, this Jesus thing will never be for me. And turn around twice, and I, if I'm late, I walk in, and there they're standing in worship. So often those that appear farthest from God are actually the closest. We have all kinds of well-thought-through arguments, but deep down there's something that keeps betray, trying to betray the brain, whispering that there's more to life than we can see or explain. Maybe their life or maybe your life is out of control and you've been told for years that God is for the good folk, the clean folk, the together folk. And the truth is, he is pursuing all of us like crazy, calling us to himself. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. 
Up to his neck in the most anti-Jesus mission you could imagine, God comes to Saul. Like proactively engaged in the most anti-Jesus behavior possible, God comes to this. I, I love this because it, it doesn't work for the Northern Irish good living gospel. This cuts right across the clean your life up, sort yourself out, prepare yourself in order to be good enough for God. Just pay attention to the flow of this story. This guy is en route to a city to persecute Christians. And God comes to him. God moves to him. Um, we had around eight or nine, I think nine, but uh, let's, let's say eight people over the last seven days in and around our community surrender their lives to Jesus the first time. Isn't that cool? One of which was in McDonald's on Tuesday night. Isn't that awesome? I love that. But listen to this. This is uh, one man reflection on what happened over the last week. I always thought I had to be ready to go and meet God. But my friend brought me here last week and God met me. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? This is exactly how he works. God moves towards us. Is that person that you would love to encounter God, he is moving towards them. He is more present with them than you would ever dare to dream or imagine. They just don't know how to articulate that yet. Verse 6, Jesus says, Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Get up and go into the city and I'll tell you there what you are to do. Like I said earlier, there is a difference between the dramatic and the dynamic. And my life is full of way more dynamic, ordinary moments than dramatic, powerful moments. But here's maybe the counterbalance to what I said earlier. We actually need both. But this is crucial and critical. Momentum in our lives is created by how we respond to the dramatic. When we respond to moments, I think we can often place the emphases in the wrong place. As far as we are aware, this is the only time in Saul who would later become Paul's life that God appeared to him this way. It's the only time where there was lightning and he fell down and, and he got blind. How different the world would be had he spent the rest of his life waiting for the lightning to happen again. But isn't that what we do? We have the powerful encounter. We meet with God. We hear some things. And then we go into our life and we get intimidated by everything that that means. And we find ourselves waiting for the next flash of lightning that perhaps never comes. And we don't actually move. And the moment stays just that. When it was released to us to create momentum in our lives. You see, there is a difference between an encounter and an experience. Having an experience usually doesn't require anything of us. And when it's over, we are no different. 
I have never in my life, and I'm not aware of one in the scriptures, where I have had an encounter with God, or read about one, that didn't require the encounter E. Let's make up words. To do something. I've, n- I've never seen it. When God encounters people, he requires something from them. In encounter is command. And we see this here. It's the difference between encounter and experience. And um, forgive me, but particularly in our tribe, we can put experience above everything else. And we want the band to be amazing, ministry time to be flowing, and we can have some of the most powerful experiences of God ever and yet remain unchanged. Why? Because we don't know how to see what he's saying in the encounter. So Paul, Saul has this powerful encounter with Jesus and the Lord speaks to him, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Any of you find those types of commands really frustrating? Get up and go into the city and then you'll be told what to do. Well, I'd I'd be really helpful for me. I can't even see now. Like, it'd be really helpful for me if you told me where this was headed. I mean, my my impulse would be, right, I'm blind, class. Okay, Jesus, what what, what do you want me to do with my life? Why did you blind me? Is this going to change? Am I going to have my eyes closed forever? What's actually going on here? Go into the city and you'll be told what to do. How many of us in moments like that just sit down and fold our arms? I'm not moving until you tell me what you're getting me into. I'm not moving an inch until there's some sort of assurance that this is going to work out okay. Get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Jesus doesn't say, okay, Saul, here's the plan. I know your name's Saul, but you're going to become Paul. Why am I going to change my name? It'll all become clear in a little while. You're going to become one of the greatest spiritual leaders of all time. I'm going to use you to start churches all over the world. You're going to be the guy that writes half the New Testament. In 2,000 years, little boys will be going to church wondering who on earth you were. You see, the reality is, I think if the Lord had actually spoke to him about what his intention was, he would have absolutely sat in a rock and said, no way. Or potentially got back on whatever he fell off and turn it around and just hit it a slap and go the opposite direction. The reality is, if you had any idea of what God is actually dreaming over your life, if you could see it clearly for a moment, you would be overwhelmed, paralyzed with fear, and completely tap out and say, there's no way that could be my life. And so the Lord says, get up and go into the city. And I'll tell you what to do. How many of us long for the whole plan before we take a step? We need the blueprint. We need the five years. We need the assurance. And I just don't see that in the scriptures or in my life experience. Jesus says, go into the city. I'll tell you what to do. Take a step. Just take a step. Just move towards this thing. The scriptures say that his word is a lamp onto our feet, not a headlight for our lives. I wish that was different. I wish there were headlights. I wish there were assurances. I wish there were 
five-year plans with a certainty that everything is going to be okay. And it's not going to cost us anything. It's all going to work out. It's never going to be painful. We won't have to suffer. It's just not the truth. His word is a lamp onto our feet. The context of that, these weren't like um, mag lights. They're little, little lamps that cast enough light to see maybe a step and a half. Maybe. And the reality with these lamps is the only way you get to see where you're going is by taking a step. And then the next one becomes clear. And then the next one. And then the next one. And I think this is the place many of us get stuck. Because the truth is we know the step. We, most of us actually, and when I, when I listen to you and reflect on my life, often I am aware of what the step is. But I have no idea what the next one is. And so I get stuck. I'm like, well, why would I go there? I don't know where it's headed. And the Lord's saying, when you go, I will show. Take a step. And then the next one will become clear. And then the next one. 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 A step towards a person. A step towards an issue. Maybe a step towards a new venture or towards some injustice or a point of pain in your life or our city. Because if you're anything like me, you see all the questions, challenges, obstacles, risks that are associated with half a step that direction. Yeah, but if I go there, then that person might think that, and this might happen, and what about this thing, and actually I've got all this going on in my life, and, you know, and round and round and round we go, and we don't move. Or we play games with God. I'll move whenever you. Okay, I'll take that step if you. If you give me the money for that thing, then no problem, God, I'll go. Like if, if you do this thing with that person, how many of us do this? Maybe it's just me. If you, okay, I need somebody in church to say ducks quack four times and then I'm going. <laughs> and we play these games of like, and the reality is God is saying, would you just, would you just take a step? I find myself at times in front of people saying things like, Andy, I'm really struggling to hear God in my life. Like, I'm, I'm really, really struggling to, to hear God say or do anything in my life. And, and one of the first questions I ask people in that is, what was the last thing you felt like he said? Like, what was the last thing you were pretty clear God said to you? And there's a, well, maybe there was like this thing. And then the really awkward question is, did you do it? Sometimes God's a bit silent in our lives because he's already told us what to do. We know. We're just scared. We're just a bit stuck. And his love hasn't changed. His presence hasn't changed. His affection and compassion for you hasn't changed. He's just like, I, I don't have a whole pile more to say until you do that last thing I said. Jesus says to Paul, get up and go into the city. You'll be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Can you imagine that? 
We don't have time to even talk about what these guys were experiencing, but this is crazy. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. They led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat anything. He stands up physically blind, but seeing the clearest he ever has in his life. James, why don't you guys come on back up? You know, I saw the best example of this I've seen a long time. Sorry, not... Whoops, read your notes properly, Andrew. I've seen the best example of this I've seen in a long time, a few weeks ago, watching Paddy Kilty's documentary, uh, My Dad, The Peace Deal, and Me. Did any of you watch it? If you haven't watched it, it's probably off the iPlayer. Phone the BBC and see if you can get a copy of it. It was just profound. Absolutely incredible. But Paddy interviews a man in the documentary called Richard Moore. And in 1972, Richard was 10 years old, and uh, he was hit between the eyes uh, by a rubber bullet fired by a a soldier. And uh, he was instantly made permanently blind by the impact of the rubber bullet. And um, his father, standing over his intensive care bedside, asked one of the doctors quite seriously, is it possible? Can Can I give him my eyes? Imagine that. Those of you who have kids, they take a out to play and they come home blind. Richard has gone on and lived the most extraordinary life. In 1996, he started a charity called Children in the Crossfire, helping to alleviate the suffering of children caught up in war all over the world. He reached out as an adult to the soldier that shot him. They've since met and become real friends, spending time in each other's homes, giving lectures and reconciliation, working on different projects together. And in the documentary, as Paddy Kilty's interviewing him, Richard uses the F word that's really offensive in Northern Ireland. It's the real F word here talks about forgiveness talks about forgiveness and he spoke about how he had forgiven the soldier and how that had set him free this is a quote from Richard Moore he says this by forgiving the soldier I'm not going to get my eyesight back but in forgiveness I can change the future Is there ever a more prophetic statement for Northern Ireland? In forgiveness, I can change the future. How can it be that a blind man can see more clearly than the rest of us? Now, I don't know the detail, but I bet my house that as an 11 year old, Richard didn't wake up saying, I need to forgive this soldier. I can only imagine the process and the journey and the one step at a time. The one step that leads to another step that leads to another step that leads to another step that leads to freedom and life and hope for so many of us. We're running out of time this morning. You see the exact same thing happen 
with the other character in this story in the city, Ananias. As God appears to Ananias and says, hey, there's a guy coming called Saul and he's blind and you need to go and put your hands on his eyes to restore sight. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I relate to Ananias. He's like, are you serious? I know this man. He's coming to find people like me to best case scenario put me in jail. Or worst case scenario, parade me out in front of the city, gather a crowd, and encourage them to brutally execute me. You want me to go and pray for that guy? Just take a step. Just take a step. I don't know how all of this works. But without Saul, who would become Paul, none of this exists. What future for our city requires your step? What future for your family requires your step? What future for this mad, crazy place called Northern Ireland requires your step? I wonder what it is that you feel like God is asking you to step towards. Maybe not just this morning, maybe this year, maybe for the last 10 years. What requires your step? If you're able, will you stand?